First, on behalf of your daughter, Corrine, sorry, Margot. I feel like I kind of know you, even though I've never met you. I'm so sorry. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. The great Swedish poets and wordsmiths, Abbas, once said, take a chance on me. Today on Keep It Fictional, we are going to take a chance on three debut writers. Our theme is new authors, new emergent authors, whether young or old, that this is their very first published work, their baby that they put out into the world, hopefully to be followed by many other babies. This is a horrible metaphor, like a constant stream of babies and new books coming out. But a debut book is is a, a really like special event. And I'm going to choose another horrible metaphor because that's just the kind of day it is. Sometimes when you're profiling a serial killer, you go back to their original crime or any kind of criminal, you go back to their original crime to kind of look at their psychology and determine who they are at the start. Much like you can do with a debut novel of an author, that you go back and you see the kernel, the grains of who they are and what they are trying to say. Virginia, I can see your face. It's an imperfect metaphor, but it's my debut metaphor of the episode. So welcome to Keep It Fictional, your book-loving podcast for all of you book lovers out there from your fellow book friends. I am Crean. I am joined today by Liz and Virginia. And today we are going to examine a, a debut book by an author. We didn't set any kind of like stipulations on that. And I mean, we had a lot to choose from. According to some statistics, there are between 250,000 to 3,000 books published a year in North America. And it's give or take imperfectly mathed out, about 20% of those are debut authors. So they are new authors who do not have anything traditionally published before. And so some of these have been big splashes. Sometimes there are bidding wars for uh, an author's first book. For example, City on Fire, the author was paid $2 million despite never having published a book before. Have I read City on Fire? No, I haven't not. And yet they thought to take a chance on them. Um, if you go back to some really famous authors' first works, uh, you can see that they arrived on the scene with a splash, like Donna Tartt's Secret History or Harper Lee's first and last book, To Kill a Mockingbird, or Zadie Smith's White Teeth or The Joy Luck Club. All of these books are, are amazing first works. And so we are going to highlight three of those for you today. Virginia, I am curious, do you make an effort to read debut authors? Uh, yes, because I'm attracted to shiny new things. I'm just like, oh, this is new. I never, I don't know this author. I don't know. This. Yeah. So I'm, I'm very much the type of person that would be like, oh, you know, like let's start a new thing. That's what I tend to do. But of course, there's still a lot of series, you know, like, you know, that I do follow through. So, yeah, um, but definitely attracted to shiny new things. And as we were talking, I'm kind of thinking like, 
you describe all the stats and I'm like, how many of them are going to be one hit wonders? Exactly. Right. Or the books that paid like millions of dollars for their advances for like the beginning of a series. And then the first get published, the first one gets published. It just kind of like fizzles out because every book that you publish, you're essentially taking a gamble of whether people are going to like it or not, unless you're publishing a James Patterson, in which case, like you're fine. You're fine. Liz, what about you? Do you make an effort to read debut authors? I wouldn't say I make an effort to do that. It's a risk, as you say. It's a gamble. It's an unknown quantity. And even if it's a known author, sometimes, for example, the sophomore effort is not a guaranteed hit either. Um, Just so many books, so little time. So I'd say my priority is probably plot. Does it capture me? Is it a fresh idea? Um, And then I'll kind of maybe look deeper into who the author is. So not necessarily who wrote the book, um, unless it's something I'm anticipating, but what is this book about? Is it a nice cover? Maybe a little bit. And then, oh, I've never heard of that author before. Okay. That may or may not factor into things later. I have a related question. So for the second book, like, so if you read a debut and you're like, oh, this is great. I love it. Can't wait for the second book. Do you like it when they do something similar or do you like it when they do something completely different? Again, that risk, that risk assessment, you know, and it's tricky because some authors are so good at going out of their, what you thought was their wheelhouse. Some authors are so good at that and it's so amazing to see that, but it is a huge risk. And sometimes you just wish stick with what, you know, like Richard Osman, for example, he's gone back to the same group of characters and the same sort of um, kind of feel good story type for his second book, which I ended up thinking was better slightly than the first book. So sometimes you should just know when to not mess with, not perfection, but something that works. Don't try and do everything. This wants you to stay in your lane. Stay in your, stay in your lane when you need to. Yeah. How about, how about you two? It's tough because like, if you really enjoyed the first book, is it that you enjoyed the genre that they were writing in and kind of like how they approached a problem or was it their writing that you were really attracted to? I feel like um, a lot of authors struggle with this as well. Like if they're not writing a series, if they're just kind of writing one-offs, it's like, okay, well, do I try to establish myself as this particular brand of story with this particular ideas or genre, or do I try to establish myself as like a jack of many trades, a with the ability to write in every genre. And, you know, sometimes they might even be hampered in that by publishers who are like, okay, your first book was really successful and it was a ghost story. So your next book to be successful is going to have to be a ghost story again. And you're just going to have to keep churning out same old, same old until you're established enough that they are willing to take a chance and let you write something else. Like even Stephen King, like because he was so known for horror, had to write under pseudonyms or chose to write under pseudonyms for different types of books. Same thing with um, big names like Agatha Christie, who wrote like supernaturally romancy type things under a different pen name because the name was too familiar that the publishers didn't want people to get confused or disappointed when they wrote in something else. Oh, it's so tough because that second book, like if you loved the book so, so much, and I think particularly like if it's a genre book, like if it's a sci-fi or fantasy or like a romance, and then they wrote something like about hard-hitting grain subsidies, um, I would be a little disappointed. I would be a little disappointed if I'm being honest. So I, I 
I, it depends if, if, if it was for the genre that I liked what they did with it, or if it was the quality of the writing that they did with it. Cause there's some authors, like, I don't care what you write next. I'm definitely going to read it. And there are some that I'm like, I like what you do with the fantasy genre. Yeah. Virginia, what about you? I think I, I for once completely agree with you. Um, <laughs> I know what happened. Um, but yeah, like, no, it's totally true. Cause I, I can think of it's similar to like music, right? Like I feel like if you're really, really good at it and somehow you can pull it off and that you can do another album that's completely different. Wow. Like that is amazing. But how many people can actually do that? Not that many. So I think it has to be a very special writer, very special musician to be able to change lanes like that. So there are some that could do it and, and it's always quite amazing. But you're right, like, you know, give it this, the writing that is the most appealing about the first book, write whatever, I will, I will, I will read it. So, yeah. You will follow them. You will follow them. Yeah. I mean, if you're a talented band, like, oh, I don't know, BTS, you can do any genre that you want to. I think that's our new drinking game list. It's not nuns, it's not cults, it's BTS. Or either that, we just add that into another square. I'd say we'd be in serious trouble and we'll need a definite disclaimer at the beginning and end of each episode, but sounds good to me. I'm going to try and sneak that in as many times as I can now. <laughs> All right. Well, we you have our feelings about debuts. We're very interested in your feeling about debut authors, but let's get to like our three chosen ones that we have plucked from obscurity to shine a light upon their first efforts. Virginia, who have you raised up as a luminary debut author? So I have taken the chance to tell you about more books that are coming out this in the next four months, because these are the ones that I couldn't fit into my most anticipated episode. So I'm going to tell you about one that is coming out in February, a debut novel. This one is called The Boy with a Bird in His Chest, and it's by Emmy Lunn. In Morning, Montana, there is an annual tradition. Every year at the first river flooding, the locals will gather along the riverbank because they believe that if you were the first one to spot that first water rising up and spilling over, then luck will be with you for a whole year. Janice thought that this means her new baby Owen is going to be the luckiest of all because he was born on the day of the flood. Not just any normal flood, but one of the worst ones that they have had for years. But the doctors, they tell her that her newborn son Owen has some sort of heart condition. Something is wrong and they don't know what it is. So they have to keep him in the hospital and they are not quite sure whether he's going to survive or not. A few days later, Janice woke up to the sound of a bird tweeting. And she walked over to her son. And there in the middle of his chest, some of the skin have disappeared. And you can see right inside Owen. And it seems like his heart, his lungs, they have been pushed aside to create a hole, to create this hollow space. And in there is a bird. Janice knows right away that she needs to take Owen away because the doctors, the scientists, the cops, she calls them the army of acronyms. They are going to come and they're going to take Owen away from her and they're going to want to do all sorts of terrible experiments on her son. And so they must leave now. So she packed Owen up and she ran. 
for more than 10 years, Owen is forbidden to go outside. His mother has drilled that into him. You cannot let anyone see Gail. No one, never. The army of acronyms is out there and they are looking for you. Everything Owen knows about the world, everything he knows about humans and their relationships, how he learns to read everything he learns from all the TV shows and all the soap operas that he watches while his mom goes to work. And Gail, the bird in his chest, becomes the only companion that he has, a source of comfort, a source of advice. But Owen wants to be outside. And he knows that Gail wants to be outside too. Gail longs for that feeling of flying high above the trees and taking in the sands of the forest. And Owen, he feels the call of the ocean. Maybe because he was born on the day of the floods, and so he always feels the pull of the water. And maybe because just before he was locked up in the house forever, his mother took him to see The Little Mermaid as a last hurrah. And watching the movie, Owen could just feel how free it is to be living under the sea. And he just wants to be there. So he always feels like he just wants to walk into the water. And so one day, while his mother was away, he pushes open that back door with all his strength, because it's not a door that gets open frequently. And he takes one step outside. And just like that, Owen is now on the other side of the house. He waits for the army of acronyms to jump out of the bushes to snatch him up, but no one came. But what awaits Owen in that outside world? The author Amy Lunn said that the boy with a bird in his chest in the story of secrets is a boy that thinks he's all alone because no one else is like him. And what makes you, you, is the reason why you have to hide. It took Emmy seven years to write this book. And she said that like an archeologist, Lan herself has to dig up her own secrets, first coming out as queer, and then again as a trans woman. And she pours all that into Owen's story about a boy who's trying to find his place, going through heartbreak, going through rejection, living in the fear of the world, living off fear of the man who are so used to just taking and taking and taking from everybody else, and that he can never show Gail to anyone, not even the ones he loves. This coming-of-age story is going to give you all the feels and I'm going to admit, it's probably got a little more feelings than what my usual reads are, but I really enjoyed that magical realism in the book of Gail being the symbol for that queerness, for the things that you can't show the world because you're afraid of what the world will do to you if they know. So for anyone who has a Gail in their chest, who's not sure how to release it, who's not sure how to face the world, this book is going to give you that love, that hope, and, you know, with all the heartbreaks that go along with it. So please hold on. This debut novel now is coming out in February. The Boy with a Bird in His Chest by Amy Lunn. Maybe 2022 is your year of the feels, Virginia. I don't know. <laughs> but yeah, well, you never know because every year is weird, right? You know, we all seem to have a theme for the year. So 
who knows? It's true. I, I like we had cults and nuns last year. Uh, maybe this year is just feel all the feels. 2022, feel all the feels. I'm not sure if I want to do that. My book is, it, my book has feels. It has feels. It has the feel of home. It has the feel of family and it has the feel of fullness. This is maybe not the most grammatically correct podcast that I've ever hosted for Keep It Fictional. So my book is maybe a little bit out of left field and maybe the first time that I've talked about this type of book on the podcast, although it is a book that I don't know that I can technically say that I read a lot, but it is one that I browse through a lot. I am actually going to talk about a cookbook. I know, I know, I. but hear me out, hear me out, hear me out. Okay. It is a debut cookbook. It totally counts. So when you think of Korean food, you think of kimchi and Korean barbecue. And even now, a vegetable-based diet or veganism is still pretty rare in Korea. And the number one question that the author of this debut cookbook gets asked, both online, in person, in interviews, is how can you be vegan and Korean? Which is a pretty hard question to be asked. And it is one that uh, author Joanne Lee Molinaro struggles with. So much of food and family and history is tied into your food. Um, the memories of making certain dishes together, the, the taste of your, your parents, oh, I guess it would be my mom's goulash, but I, sorry, mom, I hated it so much, but I can viscerally remember it so well. So much of that is tied in with your family and recipes that are passed down from generation to generation. So this author, when they decided to go vegan, really struggled with how do they keep their Koreanness while changing their, their diet. And in 2016, um, she started a blog that was sharing some of the recipes that she was adapted. And then there was a change in 2017 when she also started writing about her own experience and her family's experience of, of their immigration from Korea to the United States. And she says these stories were not shared around the dinner table. No one talked about their family's history. Both her mother and her father had actually grown up in the northern part of Korea and during the war had made their way down to the south and, and eventually came over to the States. But these were extremely difficult and painful stories that they, they didn't share around the dinner table in the same way. So by examining the dishes and talking about the food and connecting with her, her uh, grandmother on her mother's side and on her father's side, who eventually came to live with them, talking about the food slowly opened up those stories by sharing a particular dish or asking questions of like, well, why do you hold the knife like this? And why are you putting this ingredient in at the same time? Slowly, the stories began to emerge and this family history began to be unraveled. I have to admit, there is the internet joke that when you're trying to read a recipe on the internet, you first have to scroll through like 300 word essays about what's cup they bought and where they bought it from and all that kind of like matter that you have to get through just to get through the recipe. However, with this particular book, I actually found that I read through it. 
I actually stopped and read the entire stories that she shares about her family, their history, her dad's rice rage, where one day she made the rice too dry and it's like a family legend. I read through all of those like I was reading through someone's memoir. And I think it's because Joan Lee Molinaro is such a talented writer that they almost read like these, this beautiful collection of vignettes with some really delicious recipes kind of spattered in between them. And myself and my roommates all made some recipes from this cookbook and they were delicious. And they too, I just kind of subtly left this book on the table and they too actually read through the family stories because they found them that engaging. So this is the Korean vegan cookbook, Reflections and Recipes from Oma's Kitchen. It is a fantastic beautifully done uh, cookbook, really, really clear instructions, really goes through all the things that you might need and is really accessible for someone who is not a chef, um, has a wonderful variety of dishes, has a wonderful variety, uh, even desserts at the back that are all amazing. So come for the recipes, but stay for the family stories. I honestly hope that, I, I really do hope that she continues to write recipes, but I honestly would love her to write a memoir or a, a family history because her writing is just that good. So if you're looking to kind of dip your toe into Korean cooking, or if you just want a, a wonderful family saga that is, is warm and, and full of deliciousness, um, I would definitely recommend that you pick up this book. And sorry, mom, about the goulash thing, but it was disgusting. All right. Oh, it's true. Liz, don't look at me like that. You've never had. Oh, anyways, it contributed to my lifelong disdain for mushrooms and I have never recovered. All right, Liz, Liz, you are our, our last debut, our last debutante, if you will. What is the book that you have chosen to take a chance on? First, on behalf of your daughter, Corrine, sorry, Margot. I feel like I kind of know you, even though I've never met you. I'm so sorry. Uh, second, definitely follow the Korean vegan on Instagram. Get to hear more of her stories like in, in Instagram stories. And yeah, truly like she doesn't hold back. So yeah, it's totally agree with Corey on that pick. All right. So for my debut novel by a debut author, um, this is one that I had blurbed on a previous episode. So finally trying to go back in my TBR. And this is a book that was on one of my most anticipated lists. It really stuck out in my mind after having read it last year, I believe. And I wanted to re-blurb it again, just in case uh, you had missed it or kind of wondering, what did I think of it? Does anybody care? Is anybody listening? Anyways, this one uh, is called Rainbow Mill by Paul Mendes. And this has been billed as a semi-autobiographical coming-of-age story. So I do love a great biography and memoir. So when you tell me a work of fiction is semi-autobiographical, then that makes it a little more juicy for me. Now, this book starts off in the 1950s, where we meet Norman Alonso, and he's a Jamaican immigrant to Britain, and he's brought along his wife and children. Now, as you can imagine, in 1950s Britain, the struggle to support his family financially, all the while facing racism, was perhaps even more pronounced than it is today. It still exists, but imagine in the 1950s coming from Jamaica and attempting to create a better life for your family. On top of all of that, um, Norman has an illness that will eventually 
take his sight while his children are still very young. So you've got your middle-class, borderline poverty family struggling to make ends meet. uh, And that essentially is the essence of their lives. It is struggle and it is hardship. From there, the story fast forwards to the turn of the millennium around 2002. And this time we are out of the suburbs and in London. And we meet Jesse, who is part of Norman's lineage. He happens to be his grandson. Now, when we do catch up with Jesse, he has just left his suburban home of Wolverhampton, otherwise known as what is in the heart of Black country. And he has left home not just because the opportunities in that town are few and far between, uh, but because he has a very unsupportive family and home life. At this point, Jesse is still a very young man, barely out of his teens, um, and he has been planning to leave for some time. Not only has his family in his house been unsupported, but the entire community of which that family is a part, their religious community, uh, their Jehovah's Witnesses, um, and they have turned against Jesse. They treat him poorly because he is gay. He's desperate for a fresh start. So he goes to London, you know, again, like Norman, with barely any money to his name, but with a desire to make a better life for himself. Unfortunately, at that age, and with what little means that Jesse has, he needs to turn to sex work to survive. On top of all that, of course, dealing with his sexuality and sex, who also has to struggle with racism, even though we have supposedly come so far from Norman's day, and also with class divide. Now, this book, I think um, when I talked about it originally, uh, when I blurbed it originally, I said it wasn't for the faint of heart from what I'd heard. After having read it, I'd say that is definitely true. So there are some very graphic depictions. Uh, the author, Mendez, does not mince words. He doesn't try and glamorize sex work. He doesn't try and gloss over things, use euphemisms. If that is the type of uh, language that you are more comfortable with, Uh, where things are alluded to as opposed to spelled out for you, then uh, perhaps give this book a pass because Jesse's coming to terms with his sexuality, with his own personal identity, is deeply connected to his sex work. So just a warning about that, depending on what kind of content you are comfortable with. However, that's not to say that these graphic depictions um, take away from his story. In fact, the the sort of brutality of it all and, and how that, uh, that type of work oftentimes has diminished his perception of his own personal self-worth is very eye-opening. You know, when we think back to this work being built as semi-autobiographical, then, you know, I, I appreciate it all the more that perhaps there is this personal insight that Paul Mendez has brought to the table to really highlight what a lot of, a lot of young people who face many challenges, who face discrimination, uh, who turn to this type of work, um, it, it really makes me appreciate that, that there are a lot of people who struggle with this and that there should be more supports for people in this situation um, so that they have some options. Maybe they don't want to do this type of work. And eventually, Jesse does come to this sort of a crossroads in his life. He knows that uh, for his own physical health, for his own mental health, uh, for his own longevity, he knows that he has to find a way 
to use his other key asset, and that is his brain. And he wants to move away from that day-to-day life of struggle and survival to truly be surviving and thriving. And based on what you will read about Jesse in this first part of his story when he heads to London, kind of get the sense that maybe he's going to make it after all. So not to give anything away, but again, Rainbow Milk, very graphic in terms of not mincing words. What I'm assuming is being very truthful to a a lot of people's experience, perhaps the author's own experience, the people who've been in Jesse's position, um, where you know you you are so desperate for a better life, for acceptance, um, to find your place in the world that you would do just about anything to survive. So this one is called again Rainbow Milk by Paul Mendez. Fantastic, Liz. Thank you so much. I love when because I think we've all had to do it. It's like when you blurb something and you go back and it was just as good or exactly as advertised that you can be like, I chose good. I chose good. All right. Well, fantastic. Thank you uh, to my book friends for sharing their debut picks. And remember, if you have the time, keep a debut in mind. At the library, they're all free. Take a chance on me. Thank you so much, everyone, for joining us for Keep It Fictional. Let us know if there are any debuts that you have loved this year, and we'll see you in our next episode. Have great reading, everyone. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Mm-hmm.